Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship sofa and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Good evening, children of the night. A recent episode from our friends at Radiolab I simply must draw your attention to. The episode, which I've linked to in the show notes, commemorates the life of a man named Joe Frank. He was a known name in radio, a legend, but if you weren't in the industry, there is a solid chance... You've never heard of him. I hadn't. 
As I listened to the podcast episodes, included clips from Joe Frank, I realized that I was listening to a madman. Children of the night, you know very well that there are a few classes of people who tales to terrify truly treasure. And one of those categories are madmen. His monologues sound as if, at any moment, they would culminate in a murder, likely in an elevator. If you were asked to categorize the genre of work, you'd probably land on experimental, and probably not horror, but it is strange and unsettling. I've also linked to the man's website. JoeFrank.com's about page reads, Joe Frank is an American radio icon known best for his engaging, often philosophical monologues and radio dramas. Joe's radio programs are at times dark and frequently funny. Adding to the absurd atmosphere of his monologues and dramas are loops of percussive music over drones. The Listen page has a heavy amount of free audio to listen to, and I drank deep from that well. I might draw your attention to the recording titled Existential Journey, which was apparently used as part of a fundraising drive. I'm not sure who in their right minds would be motivated to open up their wallets by that piece, but then again, here we are. Are any of us in a right mind, or even able to define what exactly that might be? Take a listen to the Radio Lab episode and click around in the Listen section of JoeFrank.com. I think it'll be worth a few minutes of your time. On a slight side note of housekeeping, there is a film festival in Winchester, Virginia that I try to make it to twice a year, if I can. This past year, I decided that I would like to sponsor a film in the said festival. When I realized after the fact that a sponsorship comes with the opportunity to put a name on it, I decided I'd go with Tales to Terrify. As this podcast is the only project I'm involved with that would either benefit from exposure or not have a problem with me sponsoring a foreign or indie film that might contain strange adult content, as some of them do. I mention this, of course, so that you know that has happened, but also mention it so that any Patreon member is fully aware that Tony didn't just cut me a check from your patronage and then turned around and give it to an entirely different creative endeavor that you don't benefit from. So, full disclosure, the film festival sponsorship came out of my own pocket, not your generosity. The film that I sponsored is called November. It's based on an Estonian novel and is set in a pagan village with werewolves, plague, and magic. Beyond that, I don't know anything about it, as I prefer to go into these movies as thematically blind as possible. I'll give you my thoughts after I see it. But now, we have a story for Valentine's Day. It comes to us from Simon Avery. Simon has been published in a variety of magazines and anthologies, including Black Static, Crime Wave, The Best British Mysteries 5, Beneath the Ground, Birmingham Noir, Terror Tales of Yorkshire, and Something Remains. A novella, The Teardrop Method, is forthcoming from TTA Press. He lives and works in Birmingham. Listen with me to Simon Avery's The Unresolved, a Tales to Terrify original. My dearest Emily, this letter finds us breathless and exhilarated from another day exploring a fine assortment of Romanesque churches and Renaissance and medieval houses in the foothills of the Pyrenees. 
We have found a small guest house for the night in the hilltop village of Orignac. The food is excellent and the evenings are long and warm. Jeremy is sketching as I write. It truly is a bucolic bliss. Oh, how I miss you, my dear. Please, be assured that I am counting the days until I am to return to your fond embrace and we can finally exchange your vows. Often I bring to mind that wonderful day when we took our regular constitutional along the sun-dappled Thames and I finally got down on one knee and proposed to you. No matter the warmth of these poor French village folk or the splendour of the countryside as the leaves begin their gradual turn towards autumn, it is all but a pale substitute for the notion of spending the rest of my life with you. With love always, Richard. Richard awoke from another dream of the flesh. It was something he'd grown accustomed to, but it still disconcerted him. Night after night, this tender skin and the heat of unbridled passion, lips so soft that they made him ache for them on his, the breath going out of him when finally they were, the chorus of sighs all around him. Unfamiliar men on beds or on pillows, their bodies shifting and curling around others. The memory was sweet and, at the same time, abundant with shame. When he heard voices, he woke and remained in the same embrace he had abandoned to his dream. Jeremy was still asleep, but the morning was already creeping in beneath the curtains. Richard lay for a moment his hand running from Jeremy's shoulder to the back of his neck and up into his long blonde hair. Soon he'd have to rise before the chambermaid came knocking at the door. They pushed the beds together in every room they stayed in on this trip and then in the morning pulled them apart. Jeremy was thin now, almost emaciated. Richard could trace the line of his hips the ladder of his ribcage. There was now a palpable sense of his mortality, of everything changing, of the days becoming inexorable, as if they were running down a lane that was narrowing into darkness, knowing that only one of them would stumble out into the light on the other side. But he wouldn't weep this morning, no matter how filled to the brim he felt with words that they couldn't say to each other. Soon this beautiful sojourn through France would be over, and all that would be left was England and the winter, and the knowledge that he'd have to spend the rest of his life without Jeremy. Richard slipped out of the bed and washed and dressed quietly. He pulled the bed away from Jeremy's and packed their things. Jeremy had drawn him in the nude last night and left the sketch on the floor. He'd been reluctant to remove his clothes so that he could be drawn. But Jeremy was persuasive and Richard was always loath to dismiss his suggestions. It was Jeremy whose confidence had gained them access to the sacrosanct of churches or the attendance of libraries that promised all manner of fascinating manuscripts and folios. 
It was also Jeremy who kept the spirits raised when they were otherwise weary or in need of sustenance or shelter. His boundless opportunism and enthusiasm was in direct opposition to Richard's manner, which was diffident and prone to dark moods and indecision. It was a balance that suited both of them. Somewhere in the middle was a man they both aspired to be. They took a train early that morning with a view to winding down their final days in Carcassonne, a hilltop town in the Languedoc area. Famous for its medieval citadel, La Cité, with numerous watchtowers and double-walled fortifications. The first walls were built in Gallo-Roman times with additions made in the 13th and 14th centuries, Richard said, reading from the guidebook. He brought with him. Oh, do put that away, Richard, Jeremy said. Well, you've got your head in a book. There's all manner of beautiful countryside flying past. I think I've even spotted a handsome stable boy with his shirt off just five minutes ago. Richard put the book down and gave Jeremy a sharp look. There was another man in their compartment, but he was an old fellow, and his head had begun to nod forward not long after they pulled out of the station. He's snoring his head off, Richard, Jeremy said with a smile. Do loosen up a bit. He squeezed Richard's knee. Richard swatted him away and went to sit on the opposite side of the compartment. It is beautiful, Richard commented after a moment's silence. The gentle rocking of the carriage and the views of fortified settlements and limestone clefts, vineyards and farms cobbled alleyways and fast flowing rivers were like bookmarks in the pages of the trip around southern France. The days had been luminous. Now there was only the sense of the end approaching, a final chapter that neither of them wished to acknowledge, for fear of what it meant to both of them. Jeremy was resplendent in his Oxford bag trousers, a silk shirt and a fair owl jumper which he'd knotted over his shoulders. The morning had been a little crisp as they'd waited on the platform, and now the skies were turning pale with clouds. They crossed bridges and green level land, little stone houses, slowed for tiny stations with a handful of people with battered suitcases, clattered past green canals and hayfields. The train began to empty as they continued. People scattered to ancient towns with spires and fortifications. It was late afternoon when they reached what appeared to be the end of the line. Jeremy had been lulled into a restless sleep, but Richard was immediately certain that this was not Carcassonne. Had they boarded the wrong train entirely? He considered his map for a moment then nudged Jeremy awake when he heard the guard's whistle, and the last passengers began to rise and leave. Are we here already? Jeremy said, a little disoriented. We're certainly somewhere, Richard said, glancing out of the window. But it's not our destination, I'm afraid. You'll have to talk to the guard. Although Richard's grasp of the language is more than passable, Jeremy's was better and he was less flustered in these situations. It took a moment to gather their bags 
and then they disembarked. Richard stood with their suitcases on the platform and watched Jeremy charm the old man. He'd studied their map again and thought perhaps they were close to a seat of an important commandery, built by the Knights Templar in the 12th century, a fortified village with dependencies scattered around the landscape. The station was otherwise empty now, the remaining passengers having disappeared down the warren of lanes and into the gathering dark of early afternoon. As Richard stood there waiting, the train jerked forward. He made a motion as if he was trying to stop it, going and leaving them stranded. The last car passed him, revealing empty tracks and another key on the opposite side, similarly empty. He felt bereft suddenly. Jeremy's face told him everything he needed to know. They sat in the waiting room. There was a large scale and schedules on the wall, an empty ticket window, gathering shadows. Sorry, old boy, Jeremy said, smiling. It seems we're marooned here until the morning. We must have taken a wrong connection somewhere. What will we do? Richard always deferred to Jeremy's better judgment. It was just another aspect of life that his absence would make all the more difficult. Well, he says there's a village a mile or so from here. He did suggest we walk a bit further in the opposite direction, but that village is five or six miles to the south. I know which one sounds more attractive. Perhaps there are no guest houses in that village, Richard suggested. We'll make do, Richard. Jeremy said, then his voice soft, calming. We always do, don't we? Richard nodded after a moment. Yes, I suppose we do. The last of the afternoon sank below the avenue of trees, and the air turned chill. A breeze sang through the long grass on either side of them. It sounded like a sigh, Richard thought a breathless sigh that went on until there was nothing left. It reminded him of his dream, of the memory of that brief, unguarded moment of pleasure before it had suddenly been snatched from them. Jeremy began to cough. Soon it grew so violent that he had to stop in the middle of the road to bend over and let the convulsions have their way with him. The doctors had diagnosed Jeremy with cancer of the lungs some seven months ago. It had been relatively rare. They had no real idea when the disease might eventually become intolerable and leave them bedridden until death. But it would happen, and from first-hand evidence of recent weeks, they were entering the final stages of Jeremy being able to maintain his current lifestyle. He raised his hand to ward off Richard's comforting arms around his shoulder. He detested that the disease would eat him away eventually, take away all of the things he'd once taken for granted. Sympathy was not tolerated. It was growing dark by the time they crossed a pretty stone bridge across a fast-flowing river. There was still no sign of the village. Jeremy said, we haven't really talked about the future, have we? Your eminent nuptials. The marriage, Richard said. Gracious, I've hardly given it a second thought all week. Admitting it surprised him. 
It's the rest of your life, Richard, Jeremy said. And what would Emily say if she'd seen us with our beds pushed together? Richard shook his head. She'll never know about that aspect of my life. After this holiday, that will all be in my past. Jeremy laughed. Starting your married life in deceit. That's quite unlike you, Richard. Don't start this, Jeremy. Oh, why ever not? You seem to have been enjoying the last of your freedom without any inhibitions. There's no future in that, Jeremy, as you well know. Because I'll be dead in six months, or because you'd rather not be known as an Oscar Wilde type. Richard began to speak, but then paused and composed himself. This was sport for Jeremy. He exasperated you until you gave something of yourself away. He said what others wouldn't, even when it was the very thing they were thinking. We were almost arrested last month, Richard said. Does that mean nothing to you? Do you really wish to go to prison? I can't change who I am, Richard, Jeremy said quietly to the encroaching darkness. And neither can you, despite your protestations to the contrary. The wind had begun to rise in the tall grass and trees around them. Another prolonged sigh that only reminded Richard of one thing. A sound to lose oneself in, if you wished it. But he mustn't. I'm to be married to Emily when we return to London, he said. And that will be the end of the situation. Don't you think she'll expect you to perform certain acts with her on your wedding night? Jeremy said. And what then? Will you think of me? Perhaps I will, Richard said, a catch in his throat. He stopped. A sadness so vast and wide that it might encompass the whole of France fell upon him. It took Jeremy a moment of trampling forward in the gloom before he realised that Richard had paused. When he saw his companion with his head down, his eyes brimming with tears, he went back to him. Oh, Richard, I'm sorry. Me and my big mouth, as usual. Please don't cry, or else I'll feel dreadful. He handed Richard his handkerchief. Well, we wouldn't want that, would we? Richard said, drying his eyes and attempting a smile. I shall miss you awfully, Jeremy. I don't know how I'll cope. Jeremy laughed. Well, it's not as if I'm dying, is it? He paused. Oh, wait. That's not funny, Richard said. No, I suppose not. Look, let's be getting on, or else we'll end up lost in this dark. It wasn't much longer before they passed some remains of fortifications and spotted the first few dark outlines of cottages and a spire below them. The legs were growing tired and their spirits were dampened by the change in their plans. But the sight of the village gave them haste. Richard had begun to feel discomforted by the sound of the breeze. The sighing grass had begun to sound like long, sensual whispers on either side of them, chasing them into the night. He felt a prickling at his shoulder and neck, an unnatural need for escape quickening his step. He picked up their pace, attempting to remain abreast with Jeremy, so that neither of them might fall behind and lose the other in an emptiness which seemed to be gathering them into the village. He'd lost track of time, and it was already so dark that he couldn't read his pocket watch. The first houses they passed were constructed of large, honey-coloured stone, their roofs sinking, their sills worn. The windows were dark. 
The street became cobbled and narrow and descended sharply past more lime-washed cottages. There was a sense of bareness, Richard thought, of abandonment. Some of the houses were vacant. Their gardens were withered and their brightly coloured shutters were peeling, falling from their hinges. Well, this is a fine place to stay for the night, Jeremy said. Do you think there's anyone here? Perhaps you'd knock on a door or two. Look, Richard said. There were lights ahead, where the cobbled street met another. I think that might be the town square. It was a charming, leafy place, where a large main street crossed the minor one they'd approached from. Overhanging each of the four corners of the square were half-timbered houses displaying beautifully carved beams. The church was a little further down the cobbled lane, and the night had all but claimed it, but Richard could wait to investigate that tomorrow. He was altogether too tired and hungry to contemplate architecture at this hour. There were two women kneeling at the centre of the square, both of them praying to what looked like a makeshift shrine of some kind. They were both clothed from head to foot in black lace with veils covering their face. Jeremy had already set out to engage them. Richard trailed after him, satisfied to let him take the lead. There was a profusion of floral tributes at the large wooden shrine which appeared to be some kind of war memorial. The Battle of Frontiers of August 22nd, 1914. Names had been cruelly etched into the wood by what appeared to be a number of different hands. The French words above took him to a moment to translate. Roughly they read, They will return to us. Jeremy had waited for the two women to rise. One of them was clearly pregnant. The lace of their veils gave nothing of their countenance away, but Jeremy wasn't one for gauging people's disposition before he engaged them in conversation. It was something Richard envied of him. He'd always been the reticent one, always content to let something else take the lead. Do either of you ladies speak English? he asked. They shook their heads, so Jeremy launched into their story in somewhat fractured French. Clearly the walk had taken its toll on him. Finally, the pregnant woman pointed to one of the half-timbered buildings leading into the square. Richard glanced across and caught sight of candles in the window. It instantly warmed his mood. Jeremy had taken the hand of the pregnant woman and raised it to his lips. She all but shrieked and snatched the hand back violently and then marched away, leaving the other woman to turn on her heels and follow her. Clearly, my charm is somewhat diminished by my exhaustion, Jeremy said. Clearly, Richard said, watching the woman turn a corner, leaving them alone in the square. What do you make of this? Jeremy said, kneeling down at the shrine. The Battle of Frontiers, Richard said. It was the day that 27,000 French soldiers died in less than 24 hours. Seven years ago, you'd have imagined they would have gotten over it by now. People mourn for as long as they mourn, I suppose. Better not mention that I was a conscientious objector, Jeremy said. I'd have to attempt to look filled with approbation. Richard had spent less than a year in the trenches before being injured and sent home. It was enough. Enough for a lifetime. There are a lot of names on the shrine, Jeremy said, 
If they were young enough, they'd have been conscripted at the start of the war. There can't be many men left here. Richard pointed at the outline of the church. Well, there will certainly be at least one man here. More than one, I suspect, as that woman appeared to be in the family way. And yet, she was also in mourning. Perhaps the priest doesn't take his vow of celibacy too seriously. Richard sighed. Perhaps you might be a little bit more discreet. Who knows if anyone is listening? The house the women had gestured to seemed to lean dangerously forward over the square. Its blackened oak beams were fissured and cracked. The upper floors projected out over the low ones. Jeremy knocked on the door twice until a woman opened it. She too was in mourning. Black taffeta and mousseline de soie trimmed with lace and mourning crepe. Richard bowed his head instinctively, but the woman lifted her veil, then smiled warmly at the pair of them. Travellers, she said in English, my name is Madame Tournier. You must have strayed far from the path. Richard wasn't entirely sure what of their comportment gave them away as an Englishman. Perhaps it was his usual discomfiture, but then Jeremy never displayed anything but certainty and poise. Well, I have come to believe that we're certainly not Carcassonne, Madame Tournier. No, she said, stepping aside and allowing them entrance into the house. You are far from Carcassonne, and far from home too, it seems. Jeremy explained their particulars to her, while Richard shuffled from one foot to the other in the hall. Now that he was close to rest, he could barely stand. His exhaustion was so great. Perhaps we could impose upon you for a room for the night, and perhaps a bite to eat, if that's no great hardship. Not at all, Madame Tourier said. My maid will show you to your room, and then she'll prepare you a meal. She was younger than Richard had anticipated. He'd always imagined widows to look old and wretched, but she had a face as delicate as a bird's, and her voice was high and musical, like Emily's. There was only the slightest hint of melancholy in her brown eyes. The room was small, but perfectly adequate. Once the candles were lit, Richard undressed and washed with warm water that the young maid had provided, and then put the same clothes back on. It wasn't ideal, but at this point in the holiday there weren't many opportunities to wash and dry clothing. He looked at the bed longingly, but Jeremy had already requested dinner from the landlady, so he put his shoes back on, and, hearing Jeremy's voice downstairs, rushed down to join him. The young maid was laying a table in the dusty dining room and listening to Jeremy tell tall tales of their trip across the south of France. And here he is! Did you fall asleep, old boy? Chance would be a fine thing, Richard said, seating himself. To Madame Tournier, he said, This really is most awfully generous of you to go to all this trouble. It's almost as if you were expecting us. Not at all, Monsieur, she said. It is my great pleasure, and no trouble at all. Jeremy was inspecting what looked like a crude flute that was on the mantelpiece. Madame Tournier had gently handed it to him, and then taken it back after a moment. This was excavated from the church some years ago, she said. Richard studied it. He couldn't decide what it was made from. 
It is bone, Madame Tournier said. Quite ancient. Perhaps it belonged to the Templars, who resided here in the twelfth century. What does that say? Richard asked, noting the letters on the underside of the flute. Ready, Tim, Madame Tournier said. Latin for eternal chap, Jeremy said. Dinner was a delicious cassoulet au canard, followed by pear tarte tartan. By the time he laid his cutlery on his empty plate, Richard felt stuffed, and even less enamoured by the thought of doing anything but sleeping. Jeremy seemed to have gained a second wind, however, and over brandy, brought up the shrine in the square. How many men of this village lost their lives in the war, if you don't mind my asking? Madame Tournier's face darkened a little, but she said, Forty-eight men. Good Lord, Richard said. That must have been almost half of the village. All but three were killed. Two old men have since died. Only the priest remains. And this was at the Battle of Frontiers? Richard asked. We, France, had five armies positioned from east to west, from Alsace de Lorraine to the Belgian border. For different reasons, all the armies fought on the same day as part of fifteen different assaults, with almost no coordination between them. A division of the colonial infantry, made up mostly of men from Brittany and South France, ended up without a commander. People say he went mad and went off into battle alone and was soon killed. His subordinates didn't know what to do, and the men of the division, without orders, stayed where they were and were annihilated as they fought the German encirclement. Almost 7,000 men were killed in that small area, and many more were killed at Charleroi, further north. That was seven years ago. None of our men returned home. There was a moment of silence punctuated by the ticking of the mantel clock, and then Richard said, My dear woman, I am deeply sorry for your loss. After a moment's hesitation, Jeremy finally said, And yet we saw a woman in the square, and she was quite clearly pregnant. Richard gave him a sharp look, but Jeremy was oblivious. Oui, she became involved with a labourer at a farm some ten miles from here. Are there other children? A few boys and girls. I'm afraid I must excuse myself, Richard announced finally, stretching his arms and forcing a yawn for effect. The woman was clearly uncomfortable speaking about such things, and he hoped this might curb Jeremy's inquiries before he really put his foot in it. All he wanted to do was curl up in bed, preferably beside Jeremy, and then rise early in the morning, perhaps to steal a glance at the village church, and then be on their way to Coxon. Madame Tournier called for the young maid and told her to take Richard to his room. Oh, there's absolutely no need for that. I can find my way. But the young woman had already crossed the room with a lit candle, and he felt obliged to follow her. I'll be right along once I've finished my brandy, old chap, Jeremy said brightly. The young woman led him out into the hallway and up the narrow staircase. It was utterly black as pitch. He was quite glad that he capitulated. The young woman seemed nervous. Her face was pinched in the candlelight, her lower lip trembling. The flickering candle wobbled as they made their way to his room, startling the shadows around them. He was concerned 
she might drop it and plunge the entire building into flames. At the door, Richard paused and said, Are you quite all right, dear girl? You seem distressed. She hesitated and then launched into a violent flood of whispered French that Richard had difficulty comprehending. Tears had sprung into her eyes. My good lord, Richard said, slow down, my dear. He opened the door to his room and guided the distraught woman across the threshold. She cast quick glances down the stairs, as if anticipating chastisement from the landlady at any moment. Do you know any English? Richard said, once the door was closed behind them. You must leave this place, the young maid said. Tut the suite, immediatement. Whatever for, my dear, Richard said. You are in grave danger, monsieur, she said. Gather your things and leave. But what possible danger could befall us here? When she plays that flute, two of you will bring two of them through the veil for the night. She hissed, her hand on the door, eyes wide, spittle forming on her lips. You will burn! Richard was speechless at this. Surely the poor woman was disturbed in some way. Perhaps Madame Tonnier only kept her as a kindness to her family. I am most sorry, my dear, but the hour is getting late, and I am quite fatigued. You do not believe me? she said, her tone growing bitter. See the priest, and then decide as I speak the truth. What in the world are you talking about? Richard said. They found the flute beneath the church. It brought them home. Brought who home? Richard was quite puzzled by all of this nonsense. The fallen! Two of you will bring two of them through the veil for the night. Richard was growing weary. He had no idea what she was speaking of. We came here by mistake, I'm afraid, dear girl. It was no mistake, she said. You were guided here. They all are. I heard what she said earlier. Even queers will do. Richard was speechless. He felt as if he were falling, back to that night when they'd almost been arrested for being his true self. How could these women know? Finally he rallied. I am afraid I will have to ask you to leave, young lady, Richard said, tugging at the door. I really must insist. She had a desperate look on her eyes that unnerved him. But finally the fire went out of her, and she relinquished the, her hold on the door. She glanced out into the gloom to ensure they were still alone. But before she departed, she grasped at Richard's hand with her own. Keep this for later, she said. She had slipped a key into his palm. You will need it, she said, and fled into the darkness. Richard knocked gently on Jeremy's door an hour later, slipped inside the room and then into the narrow bed. There was a selection of sketches of the windows at the shrine in the square scattered across the blankets. He fluttered to the floor as Richard made himself comfortable. I was beginning to think you'd fallen asleep, Jeremy whispered. He turned over so that their faces were almost touching. Richard could smell the brandy on his breath. He kissed him anyway, gently at first and then more deeply. The rooms groaned and sighed around them. Richard felt his arousal becoming more urgent than his tale of the maid in his room. He still had the key in the pocket of his pyjamas. There had been a naked fear in the woman's eyes that had unnerved him. Even after she had taken her leave, she couldn't shake off her words. Two of you will bring two of them through the veil for the night. I think we should leave, 
Richard said finally, releasing Jeremy. Jeremy laughed. Go where? he said, incredulous. The train station, if needs must. It's past midnight, Richard. That's preposterous. Richard told the tale of his encounter with the young maid. She's clearly taken leave of her senses, Richard. What kind of danger could we possibly be in here? They're grieving women, for God's sake. But Richard was no longer listening to Jeremy. He could hear movement, scuffling against the walls. An insidious sound growing more urgent by the second. Listen, he said. Do you hear that? There were no other guests that they had been made aware of, and yet he could hear movement in the room next door. Jeremy heard it too, finally. He clutched at Richard's arms, suddenly reduced by apprehension. That sound, he whispered, that's coming from your room. The realisation sent a spasm of panic through Richard's body. For a moment he thought himself paralysed. Both of them lay together like children, listening breathlessly. Perhaps it's rats, Jeremy suggested, although it was clear he didn't believe that notion any more than Richard did. When the sound of something heavy scraping violently against the neighbouring walls began, they were both startled into action and launched themselves from either side of the narrow bed. There were whisperers, too, and gathering of voices in conflict with each other, a sound akin to the masses congregating at Paddington Station on a Monday morning. It sounded as if the entire room was surrounded by an angry mob, braying in whispers and moving on tiptoe. There was a long moment when Richard thought he might fall victim to the terror clutching at his chest and swoon. But the look of similar unbridled fear on Jeremy's face girdled him with a resolve he thought himself incapable of. He was barefoot and in his pyjamas. His clothes were next door in the room where the sounds of uncommon movement were emanating. Luckily, Jeremy had some clothes that just about fitted his slightly larger frame. They dressed quickly, silently, breathless with anticipation. What about our bags, Richard? Jeremy asked. We must leave them for the moment. Perhaps this will all be quite innocent when we investigate. Jeremy looked unconvinced but acquiesced to Richard's cooler head. They inched towards the door and listened for a moment, their heads pressed against the grain of the wood. The floorboards moaned and squealed then, as if someone had broken out into a run across the landing. They both flinched at the sound, grabbing each other's shoulders. Dear God, Richard, what the devil is going on out there? Jeremy seemed to be shrinking by the moment with fear. A familiar urge to protect Jeremy gave Richard the impetus and courage to fling open the door then. He braced himself for whatever might greet him. The darkness seemed to seethe and royal, a vast ocean of torment and conflict. Richard couldn't comprehend what it was that festered in the gloom outside the room, but he knew that time was of the essence if any of the young maid's warnings had its basis in truth. He felt Jeremy behind him, breathing heavily. With his first tentative steps, Richard felt the darkness retreat into the rafters of the old house, into the corners and doorways. He sensed that this was no surrender, however, simply a tactical withdrawal. 
waiting. It was huge, this massed energy. Richard couldn't assimilate any of it into his way of rationality. Instead, he took hold of Jeremy's hand and fled down the stairs, a cry escaping his mouth as he did. He felt the darkness gather itself again, and then it streaked down after them. He heard Jeremy shrieking behind him. Good God, Richard, what is it? What the devil is it? Richard could see the light of something outside the windows downstairs. A flickering of red and oranges, bathing the front room where they'd eaten a fine meal not three or four hours ago. Flames! But what were they burning in the dead of the night? He fumbled with his key, dropped it twice, as his endeavours with the lock became fraught with panic. Jeremy clutched at his shoulders, crying out as the massed darkness congregated at their backs. The whispers becoming a cacophony of statements and expletives, jubilant laughter, cryings of pain. Richard could feel it there, as real as Jeremy's presence, but he didn't look back. Wouldn't. Nothing could be gained by looking, by seeing what it was. And then, at last, he had the key in the lock, and he was flinging the door open, taking Jeremy's hand and stumbling out into the village square. The heat of the conflagration of the centre of the square was almost too much to bear. There was movement in the shadows all around them, but this was no supernatural phenomenon. Richard caught sight of more than one of the women of the village, all of them shrouded in black lace and veils. They moved from shadow to shadow as the flames rose higher, the bright cinders leaping into the towering darkness above them. What do we do? Jeremy said, his voice racked with fear. Richard, what do we do? Richard considered fleeing back the way they'd arrived, up past the dusty, narrow houses and into the black lanes. Something about that route chilled him to the bone, all that darkness given free rein around them. He was quite sure they'd not survived the escape. Instead, he began to run across the square, past the shrine and the rising inferno, and towards the church he'd spied when they arrived. Surely the priest would give them sanctuary from whatever had possessed these grieving women. He saw them gathering like ravens in doorways, surrounding them as they fled. There was light in the church, blessed light. By the time Richard crossed the threshold, he felt sure that all would be well by the time they found the priest. Ordinarily, he would have lingered at every step to behold the florid mosaic above the portal, the gothic pointed arches, the decorative arcading in the atrium, the pierced capitals of Byzantine architecture. But now, these things didn't give him a moment's pause. What finally stilled their feet was the realisation that this church would offer them no safe haven. The vaulted rooms above the nave and transept had caved in. Three piers and columns had succumbed also. Richard could see the endless array of stars above them, silent and impassive. The bricks and felled pieces of timber had been left where they had fallen, leaving the rope to the apes circuitous and laden with danger. The ground had been excavated at some point, and there were still remnants of some kind of archaeological work, huge sunken pits and tunnels leading into the earth. 
Here must have been where the flute had been discovered. There were flowers everywhere, vast profusion of lilac and honeysuckle, wild roses climbing over the pews and up the piers and columns. The idols had been toppled and the tapestries torn down and left to hang in ragged tatters. There was plaster dust swirling in the air around them as they made their way forward. Is that the priest? Jeremy said as they clambered over the rubble. Hello? he cried. Hello? Can you aid us? He was waiting at the altar before a magnificent stained glass window whose figures were brought to life from the fire outside. The light was splintering colour across the flowers and devastation with equal grace and fervour. The priest didn't respond. Indeed, he didn't even turn to acknowledge them. He was standing before a tall, narrow tree, surrounded by huge swathes of flowers and a circle of flickering candles. He hadn't moved since they'd set eyes on him. The certainty that this was a fool's errand began to dawn on Richard, but they were almost there now. Their trousers torn at the knees, where they clambered over the shattered pillars and fallen into biz. He had to see what the woman had done to the last man in the village. He had to see. By the time they reached the altar, his entire body was attempting to resist those final steps. Wait here, he said to Jeremy. Why? Just wait here, he placed his hands on Jeremy's shoulders. Please, just listen to me. The priest's corpse had been mounted on a sapling tree, or the tree had somehow grown through him. The decaying bodies of birds and hares, mice and foxes were scattered in the wild grass and flowers around him. Richard circled the body and gazed with mounting horror in his face. The priest had been dead for some time. His face seemed ossified. The lips had withdrawn to reveal a rictus of teeth and gums. His eyes had sunk into his head, a look of absolute horror etched on his features. The tree was growing out of his mouth, flowering up towards the shattered roof. The smell was beyond comprehension. Dear Lord, Richard began, covering his face from the awfulness of it all. Dear Lord, he repeated, suddenly all too aware that it was an empty entry. Richard, Jeremy said, he repeated. Richard, with more insurgency. Yes, yes, Richard said, without any measure of emotion. The woman, Jeremy said, they're here. Richard looked up then and saw Madame Tonier at the entrance of the church. He and Jeremy would be burned. He realised that now. Two of you to bring two of them through the veil for the night. They'd gone mad with grief in the years since the men of the village had fallen during the Battle of Frontiers. But the flute, this ancient thing, brought them home. The penny hadn't dropped for Jeremy yet. Richard could tell by his eyes his bearing. He was not quick to despair but it would be all too apparent if they weren't out there. Come, Madame Tenier said, it is time for you. The other women had emerged amid the rubble of the church, widows in mourning dress and veils, converging like wolves with a measured yet inexorable certainty. This is insane, Jeremy said. Richard, what do we do? Richard vacillated, aware that every moment spent doing so was a moment wasted. There were too many of them to overpower. They had the determination of madness and devotion on their side. He made the decision and acted upon it immediately. 
He took hold of Jeremy's hand and darted away from the altar, back along the jagged path they'd already trod, to where the excavations had been carried out. It was only the matter of a few yards, but panic and the fallen masonry seemed to slow their progress to that of the manner of a dream. Several of the women had flitted from their positions too, quickly gathering the intent of Richard and Jeremy's sudden flight. They were fast, but not as fast as Richard. The first entrance to the excavations amounted to nothing more than a spot where some marble flagstones had been dislodged to reveal a six feet deep landslide. Richard rushed them both down into the darkness, and within moments they were on their backsides and sliding down into the earth. The breath went out of him until he reached the bottom. He straightened up and hauled Jeremy to his feet. A tunnel led into the bowels of the church, and they fled into it without hesitation. Richard spotted a cluster of six coffins tucked inside a dank chamber, a vault that seemed to contain several generations of paperwork and what he assumed would once have been a wine cellar. The stench of mildew and earth filled his lungs. There was no light. Soon they were fleeing into the dark void, suffused with the sound of their ragged breath and the women as they gave chase. Richard could feel the soil and sand falling on his face. He ran blindly on and on, one hand clutching Jeremy's and the other flung out in front. They slipped often as the mud gave way beneath their feet. He had no idea where the tunnel led, or if indeed it led anywhere. There were places where the warren fought or seemed to curve, or else rise or decline. He made decision quickly, without thought, his mind a forgiving blank. Fear had reduced him to a machine. Escape was all he could consider. The alternative was too awful to bear. But Jeremy was lagging behind. Richard had lost all sense of time. He had no idea how long they had been fleeing the woman. But clearly, they had built up some kind of lead on them. The tunnel was narrowing now, and here the earth was only held at bay by a sequence of increasingly rotted timbers. Perhaps it only circled back to bowels of the church, rendering this a worthless exercise. But he couldn't let that notion deter him. He could hear the women not far behind. Soon they would be at their heels, and there would be no way to deter them in such confined quarters. Finally, Jeremy tugged at Richard's arm until he brought them to a standstill. He was so breathless that he could barely speak. He began to cough and doubled over. I'm sorry, Richard, <clears throat> he said. I simply can't run any further. Richard reached out blindly and grasped at his arms. But you must, Jeremy. They'll be here soon. Just one more attempt, Jeremy. Be brave and run. He heard Jeremy lift himself from his torpor and rally. Soon they were off again. Racing uphill into a darkness so vast and complete that Richard wondered if they'd already been sacrificed and delivered to the underworld. The only certainty was the mud sliding beneath their heels, the rotted wooden timbers beneath their palms as they clawed at the sides of the tunnel to aid their descent. The passage was narrower now. Soon they were almost crouching, and Richard had to resist a flood of claustrophobia. What if the tunnel narrowed so that they were crawling? What if it caved in on them? He could still hear the women behind him. The sure knowledge of their fate if they caught them lent them to some hitherto unknown strength. 
but Jeremy was flagging badly now. Finally, after some indeterminable progress uphill, he dragged them both to a halt, breathless enough to vomit in the earth at his feet. Just a little further, Jeremy. No, Richard, he said, his breath ragged. Leave me here. I can stop them long enough for you to escape. I won't go without you, Richard said. He could feel tears brimming in his eyes at the very notion of leaving Jeremy here. I won't! But you must, Richard. We don't have time for this. I'll delay them so you can get away. But they'll kill you, Jeremy. Who knows how many other men they've killed. And the mother month or so, and I'll be dead anyway, Richard. We both know that. I'd rather die knowing that you escaped. But Jeremy! No, Richard, I've made up my mind. He couldn't see him in the darkness. He wanted so much to see him that last time. So he pictured him in the hotel room in Orignac this morning. He stood at the wash basin, naked to the waist, the sharp angles of his shoulder blades, the sound of the razor scraping his pale skin, cleaning it in the soapy water. Glancing back at Richard, flashing that raffish look, his wet blonde curls, those pale blue eyes. He reached out and touched his face. Jeremy, he began. Please don't say anything, Richard, Jeremy said. Don't make this difficult, please. Just go. And then Richard was turning and running. Couldn't look back. There was nothing to see, but he heard Jeremy using his weight against the rotted timbers holding the earth in place. Richard heard the wood begin to splinter and break, the earth giving away behind him, sealing up the distance between him and Jeremy. He wouldn't weep, not until the end of things. He fled blindly into the tunnel, his body gathering cuts and bruises as he went. He ran and ran. The earth rose steeply after five or ten minutes. He'd lost the ability to consider how long he'd been beneath the ground. The tunnel began to open up and he scurried on, breathless and hysterical until he finally caught sight of light in the distance. A gradual sense of sight being restored and detail beginning to return to the world. His lungs felt corroded with earth and dust. And then there it was, the light at the end. He emerged shrieking with the horror of the journey and the weight of his loss. He cried out to Jeremy at the tunnel mouth, but there was only silence. He rose finally and realised he had emerged high on a limestone outcrop above the village. The shattered remains of tower and gatehouse stood on a plateau. The fragments of fortifications from the time of the Templars. From here he could see down into the village. He could see the fire in the town square and the women gathered around it. The ceremony had begun. The dead were there too. That black mass that had chased Jeremy and Richard from the boarding house had form and substance now. He saw them, remnants of the fallen, jostling for attention at the conflagration. Men in military dress, carrying their mortal wounds with them. He couldn't linger for long, and the sight of Jeremy being marched to the fire was more than enough. His sacrifice would give one of the dead substance for the night. Perhaps there would be another pregnant woman before the month was over. 
Richard escaped down the Cyan country lanes. The sound of the flute and the fire and Jeremy's scream chased him and his fractured thoughts into a deeper darkness from which he feared he'd never fully escape. He ran for hours. A fugitive from the night as the first rays of another day flickered at the horizon. October 14th, 1921 My dearest Emily, this letter finds me in Paris after several weeks of fleeing something I simply cannot and will not describe to you. I fear I will not return to England, and I will have to ask your forgiveness, for I fear I must end our engagement. My fondest wish is that you forget me and find someone else. You are a beautiful and precious jewel, and you will most certainly find happiness with someone else. Oh dear Jeremy is dead. Do not ask how, for the details are all but impossible to describe. Losing him has made some aspects of my life much clearer to me, and I think I must follow my instincts in the matter. The truth then, my dear. A few weeks ago, Jeremy and I were almost arrested at a private ballroom in Holland Park Avenue in West London. In fact, 60 men were arrested when police raided the party after undercover officers had watched them dancing kissing and making love. Luckily, Jeremy knew one of the undercover officers who tipped us off so that we were able to escape through a bathroom window. The following day was when we took our constitutional along the Thames and I proposed to you. I was afraid of who I was. Jeremy had no such fear. Some things are immutable and yet others are not. I see that now. So I will remain in France indefinitely. I have been unable to sleep since I lost Jeremy. Indeed, I fear I may never sleep again. His absence is almost unbearable to me. I understand now what devotion can do. What someone such as I might do to see the person I love again, even for a few brief hours before dawn takes him away from me. It is quite simple. He will return to me. With love, Richard. That was Simon Avery's The Unresolved, a Tales to Terrify original, as read by Jason Stubbs. Born in Staffordshire, England, Jason moved to America in 2000 to continue his career as an electronic engineer. Married with two boys and one girl, he lives in a suburb of the Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas metroplex. Hobbies include movies, video games, mountain biking, American craft beer, and motorsports. That's Formula One, not NASCAR. He enjoys reading sci-fi and horror fiction stories and started listening to podcast audio stories when his commute to work took over an hour each way. Scott Siegler and J.C. Hutchins fueled his addiction, forcing him to search for more podcasts as his addiction grew. Thank you, Jason. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network.
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.